Happy Easter. Friday, ha- yeah, you see that suit? Yeah, you see that suit. You like that suit. Shower today, too. Put some product in my hair. That's for you, Jen. He is risen. A lot of risen. Um, where was I? <laughs> the point that I was taking off there. Oh, that's right. We're going back to the top of the story before we get to this part here. We're starting back on Friday. Friday, where we gathered in this room and we remember how the story begins. Friday when the word of God was cracked open by the weapons of man. When this marginalized Jewish man from the wrong side of the tracks was arrested in a garden even though he was harmless. He was denied his right to a fair trial. He suffered under police brutality, and he was lynched on a hill by himself. That was Friday, and Jesus died. The body of the Messiah has been moved to the morgue. The toe tag has been written. The time of death has been declared. And the early reports out of Rome read that the outside agitator is dead. Violence is victorious once more. And you can't help but just wish they'd be a little bit more patient before they ran to the press. Because what Rome would soon find out is why we gather here. The son of love that they lynched, the Lord of life that they buried, or as my child said, where is he? God got out. He broke free. He went for a walk. That's why we gather here on Sunday nights. That's why we gather here every night. Because the child of Easter wears no chains, which means that we don't either. And so we leave the fear of Friday, we move into the celebration of Sunday, but if I can just be honest, and we can have a moment of sobriety before we put our party hats on, that's not always easy to do. I made a promise, JB, I think it was to you, where I was going to do my best um, to not be dark and depressing and cynical and skeptical and ruin everybody's Easter, and I'd like to keep my word on that promise. I have no intentions of breaking it. But if I could just say this, it's really hard to leave Friday behind in a world that has refused to do the same. It's really hard. It's really hard to just set that whole story to the side as if it never happened when we are living in a day-in, day-out reality where it's always happening. To just forget about the story where you hear the sounds of Jesus' confusion in the garden when he sees the militarized mob coming his way. It's hard to leave that behind when you've heard your friends make similar sounds. It's hard to leave behind the scene where Pilate washes his hands as he lets this man die all in the name of homeland security. It's hard to leave that behind when you are doing that all the time. It's hard to leave behind the scene where you see the spiritual and political leaders tangled up in the sheets and then recognize that they have yet to get out. It's hard to leave behind the myth, to believe that we're past that myth of Pax Romana that says that peace can actually come through violence, to believe that we are actually over. It's hard to actually believe that that is something behind us when just a few years ago we gave a man a Nobel Peace Prize after dropping 563 drone strikes. It's hard to leave the crucified body of Christ behind on Friday when there are crucifixions all around us 
still on Sunday. It can be very hard to leave Friday when you live inside of a Good Friday world. When you live inside of the empire. And yet at the central part of our faith, the story that we claim to, the reason why you are out here, why I'm wearing a suit, why I got product in my hair tonight, is because while it might be hard to move from Friday to Sunday, we also make the claim that we know one who did. And if he did it, if his way was the way, then it's a way that we ought to walk. And that is the road to resurrection. That is the road that bends down the hard place, that walks on even as it collects wounds along the way and never gives up on love. It keeps moving forward. And we know that not everybody made it that far. You'll recall the story that despite everything going as planned on Friday night, the Pharisees falling asleep feeling full, feeling good about what just went down. It all went out without a hitch. Come Saturday morning, they're a little bit more fragile. One of the Pharisees, we do not know who, heard the Nazarene in the city talking about how, hypothetically, if Caesar were to strike him down, let's just say I were to die, Give me 72 hours, give or take a few, and I'll bounce back on my feet again. Pharisees, they didn't really respect that man clearly from the story, but they seemed to give his message some respect. Because immediately they get to the computer, they email Pilate, subject title, Homeland Security, we have an issue, and Pilate clears his calendar, meets with them. We actually have the contents of that meeting in Matthew 27 where we know what they said and what Pilate heard. He said, Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So how about you give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day? Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. And this last deception will be worse than the first, to which we ought to ask, why? How would it actually be worse than the first? What kind of uh, threat to Rome is resurrection? Consider the fact that for Rome, for empires by and large, that for them to grow, for them to conquer more land, conquer more people, they needed the bodies of expendable people to do so. The bodies that they could feed into their propaganda machines. The bodies that they could lynch up in public and in painful ways to let everybody know that if you cross Rome's path, this is what would happen. And these were expendable bodies, bodies that once they were removed, nobody seemed to really care. That's what Rome relied upon. Now consider the threat of resurrection. Because while Rome's running that way, resurrection goes the opposite way. Resurrection says all those bodies that you have broken, all those bodies that you have buried, I'm bringing those bodies back. And if I bring those bodies back, the empire falls apart. All of Rome's intimidation is now impotent. If resurrection is real, then Rome is all bark and no bite. If resurrection is real, if there is a body that actually achieved victory over death, then Rome's primary means of persuasion are gone. Pilate gets this. He responds right away. It's a no-brainer. Take a guard. Go. Make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Now, I want you to hold these words right here. What went down, what the instructions at hand were, what the task was that they had to do, what was about to happen at the site where the empty tomb would soon be. Because I'm going to show you three paintings that have historically been held as like the most 
uh, uh, popular paintings on the empty tomb. Or at least according to a teenager's MySpace page that I went to today. The first one was this. Size it up. Remember what you read and see what's being reflected to you. And then you have that one. And then, of course, you got that guy. That guy right there. What's missing in there? Based on what Pilate said and what you just saw, what's missing in the scenes that you just scroll through at rapid fire pace? See, I'm not trying to, um, I want you guys to have full trust that I am qualified and I know the Bible and so I can teach these things. And yet, I should be honest and let you know that what's missing is something that I didn't realize was missing. Because in the conversation between the priests and Pilate, there are three different things that are supposed to be on this stone. Three different things that are supposed to be at the tomb. I knew about the stone. I'm assuming you did too. I knew about the soldiers. What I didn't know about was the seal. Pilate says, secured as you know how, and the priests go on and put a Roman seal on it. Roman seal is rope that is wrapped around it. The closest thing we have a picture to it is this that's the closest thing I could find to finding a painting of the Roman seal right there. And that's unfortunate because the Roman seal is actually a very big deal. The Roman seal was tied on there as a stamp of death to all who tried to break it off. If you actually were to snap this seal, take it off, you would be committing an act of treason and you could be killed. On that seal were the robes, robes wrapped around the stone and on that gold plaque that you cannot see through the blurriness there is Caesar's face. It's a stamp of authority. It's a reminder to do not touch this stone. Do you see where I'm going with this right now? Because if the stone starts to roll, that seal's going to snap. And so resurrection is not only illogical, it's illegal. It's illegal to raise back from the dead. I know you might be thinking in your head right now, okay, man, I see where you're going with this. Jesus was committing an act of civil disobedience and... I hear that. But let me ask you this, because I know the response that we tend to think about these things is, well, you know, he had to be resurrected. He had to come out of the tomb. In order for actually victory over death to be fulfilled, he couldn't just stay in the tomb and stay alive. He had to actually leave, and there was only one exit out, so his hands were tied. I, I get that. But, but let, me, let me raise you this. Let me ask you about this. On that same day, on that same Sunday, there is another scene that John tells us about. John tells us about a scene where Jewish followers of Jesus are all locked inside of the room, shaking their knees, terrified, scared out of their skin. They don't know what's going to come tomorrow. They still don't know if they're going to make it through today. They're locked inside of a room. The windows are shut. There is no door open. And all of a sudden, they turn around, and Jesus is in the kitchen. And so what we can see from this text, and from these texts, is that, yes, Jesus, physically raised, it was not a metaphorical ordeal, but it was also more than physical. Because this Jesus, he can enter into one space from another, and sometimes he doesn't have to use doors. And sometimes he chooses to. Like when there are seals slap on the door that need to get snapped. When there are Roman symbols, Roman faces of Caesar on the door that need to break. That's the time where he'll opt into it. 
the story. Matthew 28. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, went, don't, isn't that just a flattering way for history to hold that girl? Like, don't she just feel like, I feel bad is what I feel. I feel really bad for her. Mary Magdalene and that other girl, they went to look at the tomb. It's interesting that Mary Magdalene is there, Mary of Magdala. As I was saying earlier, Romans, they grew the empire by flexing their muscles, by letting people know who's in charge by the bodies that they hung. Every town they would go through, they would walk in and they'd say, confess that Caesar is Lord. And if you did not do so, they would put you in the center of the town in a very public, painful way. They'd make a scene out of you. Historians tell us that they were so trigger-happy and willing to do so and believed in it so much that there was one town where they actually put up 3,000 different bodies on stakes in public in one town in one day. That town was the city of Magdala. So Mary Magdalene of Magdala, when she comes to the grave on that first day, it is not the first time she has gone to the grave. This is not the first person that she has lost to the crucifixion. But this is the first person who would come back. This is the first person who would come back with good news in her hands. The story continues. There was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven going to the tomb, rolled back the stone, and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Can I ask you a question right now? It's been a while since I've been in science class, but what does an earthquake actually do? Like, what does it mean? What is an earthquake? Go ahead. Plates are shifting, right? It's when the earth quakes, right? It's when the foundations of the earth shake. Am I correct? Keon, is that fair to say? Like I said, I'm a little dusty on my science, but I'm sure that's close. Matthew's the only one who includes this imagery. He's the only one who includes the seal of Rome. He's the only one who includes the conversations of the priests with Pilate. Matthew is talking about the foundations of the earth starting to shake. Matthew is talking about the ways of the world starting to grow a little bit wobbly. And then Matthew says that where Caesar's face currently is, there's an angel of God sitting on top of it. Picture that scene. An angel of God comes and sits on top of where the seal had snapped. And these soldiers who are watching the whole thing, who realize the predicament they're in because if the seal is snapped, then their fate is locked in, they're toast. Their future is not so bright. They are panicking, they are petrified, they are terrified. They do not have a future anymore. And the angel starts to speak, but not to them. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified, but he's not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay, and then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. The angel sees the soldiers terrified, sees them on the ground staring at the seal that now has snapped the stone, that now has rolled away. He, he sees them in pain. 
And yet he doesn't offer compassion. He doesn't offer any healing to the soldiers. He just speaks to Mary and the other Mary. I think that this is part of the heart of the Easter message that God has for us. If your loyalties lie with the crucifiers and not the crucified, you have reasons to be afraid. If you believe in muscle and might over mercy, you have reasons to be afraid. If you believe that enemies should be lynched and not loved, you have reasons to be afraid. If you believe that keeping order is more important than pursuing justice, you have reasons to be afraid. If you believe that love can be locked up and buried down, slapped with a stone, stalked by a soldier, and strung up with a seal, and that it won't actually move, then you have some reasons to be afraid. But if you don't, if you believe a different story, the one that doesn't say Caesar is Lord, but the one that says Jesus is Lord, then limitations all lose. All of the seals that are over your own life, they start to snap. The limitations are lost because neither fear of or fate in death no longer wins. As Paul says, death has lost its sting. Because of Christ's victory over death, that means that you no longer die. Your body keeps on going. And so do me a favor, and I mean this, if you are able, I want you to stand when the moment is right for you. And, if, and I mean this in sincerity, too. Because Easter should be a catalytic moment for all of us, not just a, a thing that we do on the calendar as a church. It should be an individual and communal activity that we are taking on. It is a calling, it is a command, it is an invitation. And so if you will refuse the systems of Caesar, if you'll refuse the systems of fear, of seals and stones, will you please rise? If you will prioritize the pain of the poor over preserving your own profits, will you please rise? If you will clothe the naked and feed the hungry, will you please rise? If you will be a blessing to others, regardless of whether or not you've been blessed back, will you please rise? If you believe that powerless love is more powerful than loveless power, Will you please rise? Look around the room, you guys. This is how the church got started. When the church first heard the news of the resurrection, everything changed because death had died, which means that they could love all the way to the cross and keep on going. When the church first started, they took the empire's military slogans of Caesar's Lord, and they said, oh, actually, Jesus is Lord. Or Rome's number one propaganda line was, there is no name under heaven by which you are saved than that of Caesar. And they said, actually, it's Jesus, not that. When citizens would come up to them and say, you guys are crazy. You know what happens when you cross this path. You know what happens when you make Caesar upset. And they say, yeah, we do know what happens. You get killed, but then what? You keep on going. When the first church heard about the fullness of the empty grave, this is what the story says. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them 
but there were no needy persons among them. There's no obsession with security, what's mine, preserving my profits. There was nobody in need any longer because of the resurrection. And from time to time, it even got weird enough where people who owned land or houses sold them. They brought money from the sales and they put it at the apostles' feet. Being so convinced and convicted that death really has lost its sting, I can give everything away and I know that I will not die. This is how love wins. Let me close with this last story. You can take a seat. In the legend of the church, there's a story that I love that I think embodies and testifies to the power of the resurrection that you and I have been called into. That command not to sympathize with, with the crucified Christ on Friday, but to rise up with the resurrected King on Sunday. And it's the reason why we're doing an Easter egg hunt after the service for the kids, mind you. Story has it that after that day where Mary Magdalene, uh, she was the first to see the risen Christ, the first to see the empty tomb, as she went on, she took a trip all the way to Rome, fearless, courageous, and she walked all the way up to the emperor Tiberius with a basket full of eggs, and she said, it is wrong what you have done to Jesus, and that injustice, that murder that's on your hands, everybody else might look away from it, but I will not. This woman went all the way to Rome and stood toe-to-toe with the emperor. She was not afraid. And the story goes that the emperor says that Jesus is no more risen than those white eggs in your hand are red. And the story goes that in that moment, that white egg in her hand had turned red. And you might say it's not true. That's folklore. This is something we pass on. And yet I've seen it too many times to just pass it to the side. I've seen too many lives that have witnessed the empty grave and have gone out into the streets, into their homes, into the city, and live in a resurrected way because they finally understood what it looks like to take the seal off and really rise up. Will you pray with me? Christ, you are the Easter child, and you have no chains on you. God, help us to recognize the power that comes with recognizing that we have no chains on us either. That death really has been defeated. And that though we live in a Good Friday world, we have nothing to be afraid of. Because our allegiances are to the lamb and not the lion. Christ, give us the convictions to be faithful. Give us the courage to be true. In Jesus' name, all of God's children we say together, amen.